Well, it's good to be with you. Take your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2, out of, uh, out of the fact that I don't have a lot of time this morning, and I probably got more to say than the time allows. I'm not going to read the entire chapter this morning. We'll read it as we preach this morning. Um, but if you'll have your Bibles open, there'll be some stuff on the screen. You have your notes there. That would be awesome. This is the second message in the series on the book of Revelation. The end is just the beginning. And um, I've, uh, I've, I've just, um, so far, I've enjoyed studying and preaching through it. I don't know if I'll be the same when I get to chapter 14 and 15 and 16. But uh, Revelation chapter 2 is a great chapter. Um, the... the uh, back a few years ago, I read a book by uh, Dr. Scott Daniels. It was called The Seven Deadly Spirits, The Message of Revelation's Letters for Today's Church. Um, I did a series on Revelation, but I only did a series on the seven letters. So this was uh, one of the chief uh, books that I used to study for that. And uh, this week, I went back and reread that book. Um, Dr. S um, Scott Daniels, by the way, at the time of writing this book, was the pastor of the Pasadena Church of the Nazarene down in Pasadena, California, known as Paz Naz. And uh, many of you have been there over the years. Um, it's probably one of, our, one of our historic churches in the Church of the Nazarene. He's also been um, a dean of students at um, Azusa Pacific College University. He was, um, he's recently was the pastor at Nampa, Idaho, where he was a professor at Northwest Nazarene University. And, uh, and most recently in June, he was elected as the general superintendent in the Church of the Nazarene. We have six general superintendents, and he was elected one. So he's a, he's a pretty smart guy. He's a, he's a, one of the cool things about Scott is him and I are the same age. He's just a whole lot smarter than I am, okay? Um, but he's a, he's a tremendous uh, preacher of God's word, been a great pastor, professor, leader, prolific writer, and um, wrote in this book. In that book, he shares um, a confidential letter. And I want to read a portion of that confidential letter he received. He says, um, the envelope of this letter was marked confidential on the outside when he got home from a trip, he said, my wife and I had just returned from a five-day interview session with the church that was considering me to be a candidate to be their next senior pastor. Inside the envelope was a three-page typed single-space letter from a member of that congregation that we had just interviewed with rehearsing the last 10 years of the sins of that church. Such a great thing to read. This, in this parishioner's mind, these sins were committed against God and against each other. He said the letter began something like this. I hear that you are considering becoming the pastor at, and I won't name the church, I don't have any idea what possessed you or what crazy thoughts you must be thinking. That church is sinful, evil, and a pastor killer. No one can pastor a church like that, like this, and survive. The letter ended, 
by giving me the contact information of four recent senior pastors of that church and encouraging him to reach out and to hear their stories that ruined their lives. Well, that was encouraging, wasn't it? My guess is that that letters such as this are received often. I became your pastor three years ago. I must tell you, I didn't receive any letters, praise God. Okay. Nobody sent me a letter telling me not to come. Nobody wrote me all the bad things that have ever happened here at Olive Knowles over the last, you know, 80-something years that has gone on in this church. And, um, and, and, and like so many other churches, you know, um, when you candidate in a church as a pastor, usually they tell you all the good things. They tell you everything in the best light. They give you all the statistics and all the numbers and they tell you all of the, the characteristics of the church. And then you go and then you discover the real church. The real church. The real church. And you know what I discovered? I think Olive Knowles is a great church. Amen. I really do. It's not a perfect church because it's got people like you in it. And it's got people like me in it. And it's got people like Rusty and, and Kirby and Mike and, and, and Drew and, you know, whoever else. You know, if there's any of us that are in the church, we, are, we have all of our own idiosyncrasies. We all have our own little warts and, and pains and, and perspectives along the way. And so, so there are people. There, now, there are people that came to me after I became pastor and said, hey, pastor, did you know? Did you know? Let me tell you the story about this. And let me tell you the story about this. And those stories are stories that have lived in the, the minds and the hearts of those who've been part of Olive Knowles for years and years and years. And they are stories that are rehearsed and told from pastor to pastor, from generation to generation, that, that kind of tell the story about Olive Knowles. And so every church has a story. I have had the joy of pastoring three churches in my life. A church in Concord, New Hampshire, a church in Maryland, and a church in Bakersfield, California. Every single one of those churches has a story behind them. They have characteristics. They have, they have pictures of who they are because they're made up of people who have stories. And that collective story also is passed on from one generation to another. And those stories live on in all of eternity in the hearts and minds of people. Can you imagine what heaven's going to be like when we get up there and tell stories to one another? Do you remember when that crazy guy from the east came to be our pastor, you know? Can you remember when? And all of a sudden there'll be all kinds of stories. Well, today we are looking at the start of seven letters that are written in Revelation. They are letters not written by a member of the church, but they are letters written by Jesus Christ to that church. They are letters that, that are very specific to that time and place, and they are letters that um, commend the church for their positive things and also correct things that need to be corrected in that day and time. They are pictures for us 
of, of, of a letter, you know, and these letters are powerful. We found, we find in Revelation chapter 1 last week, we discovered that, that the book of Revelation is three things. It's, a, it's a apocalyptic. In other words, it is a book that is full of visions that are communicated to John on the island of Patmos who writes them down. And those visions are full of symbols and allegories and pictures that are just lets our mind go wild in so many ways. We learned that the, it's not only an apocalyptic letter, it's also prophetic. It's not just a prophetic of predicting of the future, but it is preaching of God's word to that day and time and to this day and time. And it tells us some things about the future, but it's also a letter because the scripture says to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So he says, John writes these letters to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And so this letter, this apocalyptic, this prophetic word that is written in the very end of our Bibles was actually written to seven churches originally. But it's also written to us. And we'll see that this morning in so many ways. In the very end of Revelation, I mean, the Revelation chapter 1, we get the very first vision that John on the island of Patmos receives. It's a, it's, a, it's a vision of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is, if there's anything that I would want you to hear today, Revelations is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about the Son of God. It's about his reign and his rule. About him not only being the Savior of the world, but being the Lord and the King of kings. He has the final word in Revelation. And he will have the final word in your life, in this church's life, and in this world's life. And you can count on that. And so while he's there on, this, on the island of, of, of Patmos... The scripture tells us in chapter 1 that all of a sudden he hears this voice behind him. It's a, it's a thundering voice. And there is, he turns around and what does he see? But he sees the Son of God in all of his splendor. The words that he uses to describe this vision are words that are found for us in the book of things like Daniel and Ezekiel and Exodus. It, it's pictures that God has already used in prophetic, apocalyptic ways that he now uses here in the book of Revelation. He describes Jesus as a, as a, as a figure who, has, who is standing like a priest with a long robe, with a golden sash. His hair is white as snow. His eyes are like blazing fire. His feet are glowing. And his voice is like, a, like reverberating through the, through the time in, a, in like, a, like a sound system that is just blasting out in a powerful way. The scripture says that he has a double-edged sword in his mouth and that he is holding in his right hand seven stars and he's standing amongst seven golden lampstands. Now you'll notice there, there are a lot of sevens. Seven stars, seven golden lampstands, seven letters, seven churches. So seven is a sp pretty important word. The very end of that vision, here's what Jesus says, the Son of God says to John. He says, write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. 
the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. Now, I love the places in Revelation where you see images, and then the scripture says, by the way, this is what it means, okay? I love parables, that the parable is given, and then Jesus says, let me tell you what it means. He doesn't always do that, and we'll discover in Revelation that sometimes the, the pictures you see and the visions you see are left to your imagination, but here, Jesus wants to make it clear who he's talking to. Who he's talking about. He says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The seven stars are the seven angels. One angel over each church. Okay. And the seven lampstands represent the seven congregations. The seven churches that he is going to be specifically writing to. So what's the significance of this? First of all, the meaning of seven is it is a symbolic number representing completeness. It is complete. It is the perfect number. You will find in apocalyptic literature, the use of numbers is used all the way throughout the book of Revelation. You'll have the number seven, the number 12, the number um, one to 144,000. You'll have the number six, six, six. We'll get to those numbers down the road, you know. But here we discover the number seven is used four different times in four different ways. And the meaning of, of seven is completeness. It's perfect. It's all-encompassing. So there are seven stars which represent the seven angels. And the angels, there's a lot of debate over what the angels really mean. One interpretation is that the angel is like a guardian angel that is placed over every church. That'd be pretty cool if Olive Knowles had a guardian angel, wouldn't you? I'm, I'm cool with that. That maybe somebody would be overseeing this church for God. That he would be kind of, you know, um, being the, the intermediary between us and the Lord. Now, we have direct access, but maybe somebody that give a report, like I have to give a report to the church board every month. Maybe God has an angel that gives him a report about how all of Knowles is doing. I don't know. That's, again, speculation, okay? All right? That's one interpretation. But I think, the, I think the one that I love the most is this idea of a collective spirit, that every single church that has ever been formed has a collective DNA, has a characteristics, an ethos, a spirit about it, you know. There are what I call the country club churches. You know, that's the churches with all the money and power and they care nothing about the poor. There's the, there's, the, there's the down and out churches that are in the trenches that are full of people that don't have any money or any influence, but they just love God and they care about the poor. There are, I mean, there are all kinds of different kinds of churches. Just go around Bakersfield, you'll discover them, okay? There are lots of different kinds of churches here in our Olive Knowles church family. 
We have a, a group of uh, wonderful teachers and staff members that some of them are part of this local congregation and some of them are part of other congregations across uh, Bakersfield that love Jesus Christ, amen, and who serve the Lord. Each of those churches have a specific collective spirit within them. That kind of is their DNA and who they are. And then there is the seven lampstands. These are the seven churches. They are the, they are the entire complete church. In other words, these seven churches represent all churches at all times. Okay? So it's not this that this letter is just for these seven churches. Although it is not wrong for you to say it wasn't for them. It's just not right to say it wasn't just for them. It was for others as well. John is using them as, as a picture of what church is really all about. Now, I don't know about you, but here's what I, I would love the Lord to do. I would love the Lord to write a letter to Olive Knowles. Wouldn't that be cool if we could get a letter directly from Jesus? And in those letters, he would say, to the, to the angel of Olive Knowles, I have this to say about you. I want to commend you in this area. And he would write all of the characteristics, all of the things that over the years has been the DNA of this congregation. Things like generosity. Things like things like. Olive Knowles Christian School and education. Things like uh, the, 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 the DNA of this church that has greatly invested in the younger generations for lots and lots of years, both in our school and in our congregation as we try to raise up children and youth to be followers of Jesus Christ. In a, a church that, is, that has many characteristics about it that are positive. But nevertheless, many times in these letters you'll hear him say, but this I have against you. This I have against you. You have at times had disunity. At times you have been splintered apart. At times you have fought over issues you shouldn't have fought over. And at times you have made the, ma the minors major instead of the majors majors. I don't know what those all are. I've only been your pastor for three years. There's probably some other people around here been much longer, much longer than I that could tell of the things that are that Jesus would say, nevertheless, I have this against you. But no matter who we are, when we look at these seven letters in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there are things that you will see there. You'll go, ooh, that is close to home. Those are things that I know that I, well, the Lord needs to help us on. And there's other things you'll hear Jesus commend churches and you go, that's us. That's us. That's who we are. Here's the good news. No matter what we are, every single church has its good characteristics and its not so good characteristics. Every single one. I don't care where you go. I don't care what you call home. I've been around the church long enough. It's made up of people like you. And you're not perfect. I mean, you know, I mean, there might be a few of you that are close to perfect. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, but if we looked long enough, we would know. So that's the significance of that. 
just to reorient you, the island of Patmos is off of what we know as Turkey today. It was known as Asia Minor. And these seven churches are found for us just off the coast um, of, of Patmos, so that wasn't far away. John knew this community well. He probably traveled around these churches. He probably knew their, their characteristics. He probably knew who they were. And he has been exiled to the island of Patmos, and he's now receiving a vision from God that is addressed to each one of these churches. This letter, Revelation, was probably a letter that was, that was a circular letter. In other words, it went to Ephesus first, and it was read there, and then it went to Smyrna, and then it was read there, and then it went to Pergama, and it was read there. I'm not sure if all seven letters were read in every church. Maybe they only read the portion that was specifically to them, and then they read the rest of the Revelation that was written to, to John. I'm not really sure. I wasn't there. But all seven of these churches are the seven that are addressed. And you'll notice that they are in order of a circular motion. In Revelation, they start in Ephesus, the closest one, and they move all the way around to Laodicea. We're going to look at four of them in chapter 2, and next week we'll look at the last three in chapter 3. But they give us a picture of what Revelation is really all about. So with my little bit of time left, let's look at some of the things that he says to these four specific churches. Number one, by the way, I love what Dr. Scott Daniels says there. I should have put this up earlier. Every church has its own unique collective spirit. The spirit that emerges from a congregation is, a, is formed by a unique combination of human action, institutional history, and cultural influence. In other words, every church has people in it, human action. They've had leaders, they've had pastors, they've had people who have spoken and preached and ministered. There is institutional history. I mean, you heard that 44 years ago, we started all of Knowles Christian School. That is an historic moment on the map, you know? There was a tenure of every pastor or leader that was a part of this congregation. There was a date when this building was built, and those buildings were built. And prior to us coming to Fruitvale Avenue, the old Oldill Church, and all the way to North Park, and all the way back in history, all of those things make up who we are, and then the cultural influence. This church is in Bakersfield. It's a unique town, okay? I mean, I discovered that this town is different than anything I expected in California, okay? It's conservative. It is a family-oriented town. It's a town that is extremely patriotic. It's a town that is, that on the scale of probably a political scale, it is more right-leaning than left-leaning, you know? It is a place that is about ag and dirt. I've heard that from some of you. Ag and dirt, you know. That's our industries. We are very, very, very common. We are a, ch we are a community that's divided by 99. The east and the west are two different parts of Breakersfield. And so here's where, where God has placed this church it's far different than the church that I pastored outside of Washington, D.C. 
It's far different than the pet church I pastored in Concord, New Hampshire, where, the, where all the presidential candidates come and candidate for about four or five months before they have a primary. It's a unique place. Every church is unique. Who are we? That's our collective spirit. And so he begins every letter this way. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, to the angel of the church Sardis. All, every letter is started the same way, okay? And every letter begins with an opening statement that connects the letter to the vision that John sees in John chapter 1. In in, in the first letter it says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. These are the words. Of Jesus standing in the middle of his churches. The vision that, that John sees is he sees Jesus in this wonderful picture, but around him are seven golden lampstands, and he is standing in the middle of these seven churches, which means he's standing in the middle of all churches. And he's holding in his right hand the collective spirit of all the churches, the angel who oversees, who is the DNA of those congregations. And Jesus cares about his church. This is not my church and it's not your church. It's his church. This is his body. And he loves this church because he died for it and he wants to continue to form it into the collective people that reflects who he is on this planet. And that's why there are times when we are disciplined. There are times when we are chastised. There are times when he brings judgment upon us. And we suffer the consequences of doing things that are contrary to him. Why? Because he loves us. And there are other times he commends us. He finds places and he's like, yes, that's my olive knolls. Yes, that's my olive knolls. Yes, that's my olive knolls. That's my church in Ephesus. That's my church in Smyrna. That's my church in Laodicea. He ends every one of these letters with these words. He who has ears, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the church. So, every letter starts with to an angel, and every letter addresses a, gives a different portion of the vision that he gives about himself. You look in chapter, chapter 2, verse number um, verse number. Eight, to the church of Samaria says these are the words of him who is the first and the last okay who is that Jesus who died and came back to life if you look in verse number 12 it says these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword in verse number in ver to the church of Thyatira in verse number 18 these are the words of the son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire whose feet are like burnished bronze 
And then, and so, so every single letter begins to the angel and also addresses who is writing the letter. Jesus is writing the letter. So what does he say to the church of Ephesus? The collective spirit of the church of Ephesus is what I call boundary keeping. This is a boundary keeping church. Notice the thing that this church is commended for. First of all, he says, I know your deeds. You're hardworking. You're per, you persevere. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. I don't have a lot of time here, but here's what this church did. It, it valued truth. It had valued the Bible. It, had va it valued the true apostleship. And this is the early church. I mean, we're talking like the year 95, 100, infancy of the church. And there were lots of people who were running around who were declaring things that were not of God. And this church was vigilant about trying to decipher who was from God and who was not from God. And so Jesus is commending this church for their hard work and perseverance in making sure they are orthodox, doctrinally pure. They have right thinking. They are orthodox in their beliefs. And that's important for every church, amen? I mean, it's important for us as a congregation that we, that we stay true to the word of God. You heard that in the covenant in the in the, uh, uh, of that the, our students are learning. They, truth matters to us. We believe that truth is not, you know, something that changes and sifts and changes in the course of time, that God has revealed his truth to us. And the most major truth of all that he's given to us is that Jesus is the son of God. And the word of God is true. But then he says this, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have right thinking, but you have a wrong heart. You are critical of others. You don't love like you used to love. He says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstands from its place. By the way, just historically, today there is no church in Ephesus. Gone. There is no Christian church in Ephesus today. I mean, that's a key book of our Bible, Ephesians. The very first church that Jesus responds to. This church was strong about beliefs but they were lacking in love towards their fellow man. Repent. What kind of love did they were lacking in? Maybe it was loving towards God. Maybe it was loving towards one another. Maybe it was loving towards the world. Maybe it was all three. Because I think when you don't love God with all your heart, you don't love people with all your heart. 
And you definitely don't love people who aren't like you with all your heart. And so Jesus speaks to this congregation and says, says to them, the key message there is that you must love God and you must have right thinking and right love. Here's the second one. The church of Smyrna is suffering and con con consumerism. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. He says, I know what? I know that living in this town called Smyrna is a difficult place to live. And I know that you're under constant afflictions. You are suffering all the time. And because of your sufferings, you are also poor. Poor was economic poverty. They didn't have good jobs. They didn't have economic opportunity because a lot of the economic opportunity of the day and time was connected to things that were not of God, and so they separated themselves from that. Yet the script Jesus says to them, you are rich. You are rich. In other words, wealth is not just your bank account. Wealth is your spirit. Wealth is the, the character of your relationships. The wealth is the way you live. Wealth is much more than money. He declares to them, you are rich. I know some of the richest people in the world who are very poor. And I know some of the very poorest people in the world who are very rich. And this is what Jesus commends this church for. By the way, the church of Smyrna is the one of the seven churches that he does not say anything negative about them. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, nevertheless, I have this against you. He actually commends them and leaves it there and gives them a word of encouragement. He says, he says to them, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. This is a hard verse to understand, but here's basically what he's saying. The people of the world think that your church is a synagogue of Satan. The people of the world are talking about you inside of you. You're weirdo wackos and you really don't know God or follow God. You are actually evil. And they slandered them all the time. So they're under affliction. They're living poor, yet they are rich. They have a reputation in the community of being people that are slandered all the time. And so what does Jesus say to them? He says, do not be afraid. You are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Notice how specific that is. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. You know what he says to us as a church? Remain faithful. Remain faithful. Remain faithful to the day you breathe your last and you die. And there are people in this congregation who have walked the path of faithfulness for generation upon generation upon generation upon generation that have gone on to be with the Lord and they have fought the fight, they have finished their race and they have received their crown of glory. 
And there's celebration over that. And there are others who gave in. It was too hard. It was too difficult. It was easier to compromise. It was easier to accommodate. It was easier to go to some other church. It was either to run away. It was either to look, look for comfort than to stick it out. Because Jesus was their Savior and their Lord and was the Lord of their church. Well, one more, and then we got to quit because of time. Church of Pergma. This is the doctrinal compromise church. He says, I know where you live. Now catch this. I love this. I know where you live. I know where Bakersfield is. I know where Oildale is. I know where Northwest Bakersfield is. I know, I know, I know, I know. I know where you live. You know where this is? No, notice what he says. Where Satan has his throne. In this town, on the very top of the hill, had a temple for Zeus. It was the highest, most powerful God. It was the God of the Roman government. And, and Jesus says, I know where you live. You live where Satan has his throne, where there is a counterfeit God who is not true and who is not powerful. Yet you remain true to my name. Man, do, do you know any gods in our culture today? What's the God of Bakersfield? What's the God of California? Of the United States of America that we call our home? The God of money? The God of political power? The God of entertainment? I mean, you name it, it's out there, right? There are lots of idolatrous gods that get our attention, that we fall down and we get allegiance to? Or are we ones who remain true to who? To the name of being a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You people there, um, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrifice idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Now, for you to really unpack this and to know what he is talking about here, you've got to go back and you've got to look at the fact that, that Bala, um, Balaam is, is the one who turns his people away from us. Not, if you want to write in your notes, write in Numbers chapter 22 through chapter 24. You will find the story of, of Balak or Balaam. And you'll get the history behind it. And basically, the idea of Balaam was that he enticed the Israelites to sin, to go away. He was a stumbling block. Hello, guys. We're still in church. Hello, we're still in church. See, we're going to love that wall someday, amen? <laughs> praise God. By the way, it's coming in October, praise the Lord. 
be awesome. But here's, here's basically what it says. You can, you can have things in this world that are stumbling blocks to make you fall. To entice you to sin. And in this church, there were people who were teaching and preaching and leading that says, ah, that's no big deal. It's no big deal if you, if you watch a little bit of HBO and Max, get a little bit of rated R stuff, a little bit of TV, MA. It's no big deal. That's just part of our world today. No problem. Don't worry about the bars anymore. Just go in. It's a, I know it's a bar, but just go in there and have a Coke or <laughs> have a beer. <coughs> Whatever it might be. We can constantly take things of the world, the culture of the day, and it can permeate the church in such a way that the church starts to, it starts to affirm and encourage people to accommodate the ways of the world. And what happens? The church becomes doctrinally and morally impure, compromised. Accommodation and compromise was part of the message to Pergamum. I'm going to give you the last one. By the way, he said repent. The church of Thyatira was moral compromise. Very similar to the other church. But this church actually participates in immorality within the congregation. They actually participated in tolerating immoral members and leaders within the congregation instead of bringing discipline and to the congregation. Could I just tell you one of the landmines of today is church discipline. I mean, how do you bring discipline to a member or even to a clergy member within the church? In America today, I got my rights. I can do my own thing. Live my own way. Who are you to tell me? But the scripture is clear that there should be collective authority within the body of Christ. And Jesus addresses this church and says, you got to clean house, folks. You got to take care of the moral decay within the congregation. Well, that's enough. 947, yeah, that's enough. I told you it was more than I could get to. Stand with me, would you? Next week we'll look at the last three churches. Maybe I'll even go back to this church here to kind of give you a, a more of an insight into this one. God, you give us a picture of uh, letters to churches. Maybe in somewhere in these we see ourselves. This is not a complete list of everything that you would be against or everything that you'd be for. But I pray that you would help this church called Olive Knowles to remain true to you, faithful to our mission, to our call, to fight the good fight of faith, to remain true to our, to our, to our collective spirit that was born so many years ago in the hearts and minds of those who've gone before us. I pray that you'd bring us back to the place of vibrancy and energy and passion to reaching people for Jesus Christ and reaching the next generation. 
I pray, O oh God, that you will help the Olive Knowles Christian School and the Olive Knowles Christian Church to remain one in mission and heart and purpose. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to be holiness people, to be people who are called to live out the gospel in our everyday lives. God, do a work within us, I pray. Help each of us as individual members who call this their, our church home to remember that what we do will make a difference on all others and our reputation, Lord, in the community. So help us, oh God, I pray. In Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. God bless you all.